I've had a few ideas for inventions in my life, and all of the good ones have since been done and executed by someone else. The first one, and the one that I'm the most proud of, and I, I don't know how well it's been executed, but I, it occurred to me that the water that fills up the back of a toilet, so you flush the toilet and it starts filling up that tank again, is kind of a waste because it's clean water when it goes in and you would never touch it when it goes out. So I had this idea for a toilet tank that kind of had a sink built into it. So the second after you flush, the water comes out of a faucet, you wash your hands, and then it drains off your hands right into the tank of the toilet. I still think it's a great idea. And maybe like 10 years ago, or maybe not 10, five years ago, I saw a picture online, it was like on Pinterest, of basically this exact toilet. And I think the caption said it was in Japan. So it's been done. In fact, I should look up and see if that ever got any traction, but uh, seems like a way more efficient way to do uh, toilet water. Uh, and the other idea was when cell phones first came out, I had an idea for a website that was basically a just a place where people shared uh, photography, but only with a cell phone. And that's not really an invention, but that's kind of what Instagram came in became. Of course, I didn't visualize all of like the commenting and you know linking up with friends. Although although that was a part of what I was imagining was like if you had a website where you the rules were <laughs> the best photography with pictures uh, to share with your friends. So, anyways, we're talking to Bob May today, who has a tool that he's uh, developed and is selling now. And so this is kind of what one of the themes of this conversation is having ideas, bringing them to market and some of the challenges that go into that. The tool is the skate plate, which we've done video a video about uh, before on our channel, and it's showed up in some Instagram posts from time to time. It's a it's kind of like a shoe that goes on your skill saw, and you, you slide your, your circular saw, your skill saw in, and it creates like a rip fence so you can get perfect cuts uh, by having a fence you know, to, to drag your saw along. Really clever idea, really great tool. It works well. And when I was at World of Concrete a couple of weeks ago, I walked past this uh, booth and I kind of recognized the black and orange looking logo and said skate plate and looked at the table. And sure enough, Bob had email. We had emailed when he sent us this tool. So it's kind of a friendly uh, face. He knew who we were in and turned out to just be a really terrific guy. And I really I was excited to meet him, and this conversation that we have that you're about to listen to um, echoes that. So I hope you enjoy. The first part of it was really exciting for me because it turns out he lived in Russia for like 12 years as a diplomat right at the end of the – or at the collapse of the end of the Soviet Union. And we don't – we only talk about that for a few minutes, but that is such a fascinating uh, piece of of history in the world – that I, it's something I'd love, anytime someone has some insight or some experience with it, I love hearing it, and, and this guy certainly did. So I hope you enjoy this discussion. This is Bob May of uh, Skate Plate, and we're talking about his, uh, his tool. We're talking about creating new products. We're talking about um, some of the challenges that it takes to bring a product to market. And if, if any of these things are of interest to you, you are gonna love this discussion. So let's get into it. Um, my first question, and it was great bumping into you at World of Concrete. That was the first time I'd ever gone to any type of convention like that. So it was a new experience for me, and I'm still kind of 
thinking about all the things I came away with. Uh, do you go to a lot of those and how do they compare in terms of what World of Concrete is like versus some of the other ones you may have been to? Yeah, so we when we launched this product in 2019, the first thing we were doing is kind of focusing on the trade shows because we wanted to get out and talk to retailers. So we went to quite a few. We've gone to about uh, over 20 trade shows uh, since September 2019. And what I can tell you for sure that this World of Concrete, this is one of the top shows you'll ever go to. I mean, for... It's very, unfortunately, right now, it's not as international as usual, but this thing is really a, a big international show. So you you get people from all over the world that come here, and it's it's always in uh, January, that first week. So it's by far the one of the best ones. Uh, we see it as a, a, a big one for the end user because you, you meet a lot of uh, guys who are tradesmen, who are concrete guys, carpenters, whatever. So it's the guys who actually use the product. So... That's the by far the best show for us for that. Um, the the other shows like uh, Stafta, we see that as an important one, but that's that one is more for the big players. It's like the big retailers. It's the it's the higher level management attends uh, Stafta. So if you want to meet really the the top guys, you go to Stafta. So Stafta for the top guys, World of Concrete for the uh, um, the end users, and then. Um, We've tried other ones like Orgill and Do It Best and True Value and, and you know, on and on. And Orgill is by far the biggest one out of those. Uh, and that's the direct to retail. So there you're meeting thousands of retail stores from across the United States and Canada. So. Oh, interesting. So that, that actually answers kind of my question. And at World of Concrete, well, the whole time I was there, I was kind of thinking, like, who are you know, all these people walking around and who's, who's like the most important people. In other words, is it for, are all of these exhibitors trying to, you know, do business with each other or is it the people walking around who are going to buy equipment? And so you're saying world of concrete, it really is kind of focused around the end users. Exactly. So the actual kind of tradesmen exactly. getting their hands on the equipment and such. Yeah. They love it because they come there, they're looking for what's coming out new and, uh, I mean, and just seeing it because every, everyone who exhibits there, they're coming out with their latest version, even the, the big players like the, uh, the power tool manufacturers, they tend to launch or show display their, their new, new circular saw or something like that. Plus so many, I mean, everything's evolving so quickly that on tools, you keep seeing every year they have to come up with something different because it's very competitive. So. I know. I almost felt bad for him. Like when I was outside at the Makita and Milwaukee and Bosch, all these huge companies, all of their tools are amazing. And like, just, you know, lights out, like power and everything. Yes. And <laughs> the consumer like me is, can go in there and be like, I don't know. They say two more volts over at Makita. So, you yeah. know, like almost like, like choosy beggars, you know, it's like true. when all of them are so amazing. And then that's pretty interesting every year or certainly every few years. They just got to keep pushing it harder and harder. Yeah, it's amazing, and it's great for the end user because the the quality, the speed, everything is just improving every year. But I think at some point, if if you're a circular saw manufacturer, I'm not sure what more you can do besides boost up. You know, I mean, they went from corded to cordless, and now you're going from yeah. 18 volt to then it's 32, now it's 40, and so right, uh, what next? So yeah, exactly because. Like with cell phones and technology, they're always like, well, we can cut weight and make it smaller, but you don't really want your circular saw being a whole lot smaller and you need some amount of weight in order to have the inertia you, you need to make it safe. And 
like you said, already on like our the cordless one we have, um, Skill sent us one a couple years mm-hmm. ago. The battery lasts all day long. <laughs> and granted, we're not like making cuts with it all day long, but but still, like the battery life is not a problem. So I don't know. Yeah, it's a tough. It's a tall order to to improve on them. Although they're doing it. They're In fact, when it. we talked to the the Makita guy, he he pointed out exactly what they did that made the new one better. And actually skill mentioning them when we, they only had a very small display there, but it was a, it was a friendly face. Cause we're like, Hey, that's, that's the one we're using. And, um, he, yeah, I guess he, he also said like, here's the next one and it's better for this mm-hmm. reason. And so I don't know, I guess when you really get into the weeds on it, they can find things still to improve. I've talked to, so all were you involved them. with mm-hmm. the, Oh, go ahead. No, I talked to all of those, all of them, Makita and, uh, DeWalt and, um, uh, skill saw and they all said the same thing that for them it's got to be something it's a very small nuanced thing that makes them stand apart a little bit from from the other guys but there isn't much major you can do to it so it's got to be it's always something little but it has an impact so kind of interesting yeah, yeah. were you involved with tools and and on all this in this world before you got involved with uh, the skate plate or I guess what's your background is is the question. What what's your career been like um, up till this point? Well, the um, I'd say the most recent part of my career, I, I kind of keep reinventing myself every like five six years, doing something different. So I was building some houses in California for several years. I built four houses, uh, but before that, I actually lived overseas for twenty two years. So um, I lived kind of all over the world and. Um, I was focused on international business, and when the Soviet Union dissolved back in the early 90s, I started working for the Department of Commerce, and I was sent to uh, St. Petersburg, Russia as a diplomat to help American companies uh, deal with this new market that just opened up, you know, 130 million consumers, and they didn't have the first clue, like, what do we do? How do we get in there? Who do we meet? How do you do business in Russia? So I went over there for that. (laughs) Holy smokes. What yeah. I, I imagine that part of Russia's history as just this wild, new kind of lawless, not lawless, but a wild west. Um, is that how it was or what, Very what much. was it like in those years? It was the wild east and it was kind of, yeah. it felt a little bit like Disneyland in a way because you have all these incredible Soviet Russian style buildings and structures and the Soviet system was collapsing, but they didn't really have the new one yet. So it was kind of like this gray area and kind of anything went at that point. So it really was pretty, pretty wild at that, at that time. Were the people like anxious to, not, I don't know if you were speaking with the people per se, but like were, were the Russians of that time, whatever, 1989, like happy to take help from Americans, like their Cold War enemy and be like, okay, yeah, show us how you guys do it. Or was it, was it, m- m- did they have to kind of figure out their own way to do it? I, in other words, I imagine they weren't exactly like, great, now we're now we are now the West and we're gonna do things exactly like our mm-hmm. mortal enemy did. And so show us how it's done. So what was that like? Like how did they in what way were they or how how open were they to, you know, outside it, it was a real help? mixture because I mean, first of all, they didn't really have access to consumer goods like they, you know, during the Soviet times. It just wasn't available. So all of a sudden they had access to all these things that we, we had, you know, it's just part of our day-to-day living. So for the average guy on the street, it was pretty exciting that uh, all of a sudden they can buy things they couldn't buy before. But in terms of doing business, what's interesting is, is some of the, the smarter guys, uh, the entrepreneurial types, 
they would look at how things were done or what was successful in Europe or United States or even Australia or wherever. And then they would just kind of copy it and replicate it in Russia. And they would become just as successful because again, you did you had all these consumers that just really had never had an opportunity to be serviced in any way. So, uh, so it's not like they were saying, no, let's copy exactly, but um, they're very smart. I mean, the Russians, these guys, you know, they're, they're historically very smart people, engineers and doctors, what have you. So they're very innovative people, very creative. So they took it and they ran with it. Yeah. And I've, I've only known a handful of Russians, but one of them I knew really well. And he and I had a business together and, and did a lot of deals and he was, his just instincts for, I say business, but in every regard, in every aspect of business from negotiating and just kind of sensing opportunities, I guess there's like a, a street smart kind of element would be the best way to describe yes. it. That, that makes perfect sense. And he was describing when he was a kid in Russia, how it's because that's how everybody lived mm-hmm. Like you couldn't count on the delivery, like whatever your, if you were, had a reservation to get a plumber to your house or whatever, like you just knew it wasn't happening. Right. So you had to solve the problem on yourself. It's almost counterintuitive that they got, they trained themselves to solve a lot yeah, of these problems a lot of do it yourself out, outside of the, yeah, a lot of do it yourself yeah. and like fixing things, you know, with just bare bones op, uh, parts and stuff. It was really big on the, like the barter system because they really didn't have credit there before when it was Soviet Union, you couldn't go and use a credit card. They just didn't exist. So it was all cash. So what, what everything was barter. You have this, I have this. So let's trade. Now you have a car part and I've got lumber that I needed. So the whole society kind of operated like that. Yeah, so. so you were there for a long, you were there for 20 years? Not all in Russia. I was all over the place. I was oh. in Russia. I spent uh, 12 years in Russia and three in oh. Kazakhstan, three in Tokyo, uh, three in Switzerland. So, uh, uh. Holy smokes. <laughs> so what's it been like watching, and we'll get to the skate play, but this is so fascinating. <laughs> what, what's it been like over the last 20 years from that time till now? Because Russia has gone uh, through a huge transformation again of having like a, a time of we'll say kind of freedom till whatever it's like now. And yeah. I, I only know what, you know, the, the media portrays. I know. So, so we just have to be careful, like- careful talking about politics and things like that. But when I was there for sure, I mean, in, in the beginning it was such enthusiasm. It just, the place was on fire. It was booming uh, yeah. companies that came over. I mean, by the time you get across these 11 time zones to, you know, you start your business in Moscow and slowly work through these regions to get to the, the yeah. eastern part, I mean, you're just—it's the growth was just uh, phenomenal. Um, so the growth was great, but then the political situation is that you had those independent governors out there in those regions, and and that just didn't last very long. So at some point, yeah. Moscow as the center said, "Look, no, you guys don't have this independence. I'm putting my own guys there." So it went from high enthusiasm to concern and it became negative and you started to see a lot of uh, Westerners starting to back off and to leave the country. And when it got to the point when the Russians themselves started looking for their, as they say, their plan B, how do they exit if it gets too bad? So yeah, it kind of came back to a little bit. They call it controlled democracy is what it is. That's the best way to describe it. So you're kind of free, but... Yeah, I was just listening to something. It was so interesting, and it was talking about more in the Soviet era how everybody knew that the KGB controlled everything and was lying, you know, and they kind of accepted it. And like everybody knew that that's the way it was, but mm-hmm. they just kind of were okay with it and just went along with it. Whereas they didn't, they didn't have like this a false sense of 
what their government was. It is really interesting yeah. and what a fascinating country, especially because these uh, these people are like you said they they it's such a different world and their experience over um, last. 20, 30 years, you know, it's lots of the same technology overlap, but just a different mm-hmm. reality. There, well, that's, well, so, so what happened from there? Cause you, you, uh, you're, you're now in, um, in this tool world. Yeah. So maybe kind of bridge the gap there. For yeah. Me. So what happened after all that time overseas? And it's not easy living and doing business in, uh, you know, Soviet Union, uh, or Russia or, or any of those countries. It kind of wears on you after a while. And you start to think like it's reality when you know it isn't. And I felt like, Look, it's time to come back to the States. I got to get grounded again. So I went to California and um, uh, I got involved. I, I found a place that I was going to buy to renovate, but I ended up tearing it down and, and kind of building a brand new new home. And I met my, my friend and he's the one that uh, actually came up with the idea of the skate plate. He's been there uh, building houses for about 30 years. So anyway, we, we worked together. I built a couple more houses there. He can continue to build and we decided to let's revive this, uh, the skate plate. So, so reviving. So he had kind of put, put it together to some extent. And then did you, what, what did you do? When right. You sort of, so did you kind of re, redo it a little yeah. bit. Or was it just more like getting the sales? No, no. In, in a big it? way, because um, the way he did it before on the West coast is predominantly worm drive saws. And, um, yeah. So what he did is he designed one for the worm drive version of the circular saw. And the, the way his original design, you actually had to remove the factory base plate from your circular saw and then bolt the skate plate onto it. And um, so it was much more work to kind of get it going. And then it became kind of permanent because it was on your saw. It would take another 15 minutes to remove it and put your old plate on. So it kind of, and you lose the old one anyway. Yeah. And you lose or break the old one anyway. So, um, so they did that. And the other thing is they were trying to uh, produce it in the States and they just, it just, they came to the conclusion that the cost, uh, it was just a little bit too tough to keep the pricing down because of the cost of labor to, to do it. So they had some early success. I mean, they, they, they sold it for about three years. But again, it was primarily on the West Coast, and um, they didn't have a Sidewinder version. And 95% of the circular saw market is Sidewinder. So you have this plate that fits 5% of the market. So, you know, they were kind of fighting against themselves over time. They showed it to the big big box stores, and they said, yeah, it looks great, but it's only 5% of the market. So it's not so super yeah. interesting. So it eventually uh, kind of just dissolved. Uh, they, they just didn't keep putting more money in and it sat for four years. So when I came along and I was building and we said, look, why don't we just revive this thing, do it the right way. Let's learn from, you know, your mistakes or the lessons from before. Mm -hmm. And we said, let's, instead of having to remove the base plate, let's create like a shoe where now you just slide your saw in and you slide it in. It just takes a, a matter of seconds. And then, you know, cause that was a big hassle. That was part of the hassle. Yeah. So we did that and we said, Again, to be smart, if we really want to uh, make this available to circular saw users, we need to have two versions, one for the worm drive, one for the sidewinder. So we made two versions. So it took about 18 months because you have to redesign. Uh, that takes time for the design, uh, then the, getting the developing the tooling and then running a, some pilot production and testing it out. And, and so it was 18 months uh, from the, the thought of reviving till actually launching the the product again. So, wow. Yeah. Do you have any like insight for why it is that the West coast uses 
worm drive and everybody else uses the sidewinders. What what is it about West Coast that made that the direction that everybody went? What I've been, what I've been told is that the Army uh, Corps of Engineers used to work in California and they designed the worm drive saw. They developed it because they needed one with more torque and they wanted one where you can look at the blade on the left side instead of like reaching over looking on the right side. Yeah. So they were predominantly in California and the West Coast and they were doing all this work. And my understanding, they just kind of dumped them there, and that was it uh, after they finished. And it just kind of uh, picked up. So when you meet guys now, uh, most framers, carpenters, whatever, who use worm drive, they just will never use a sidewinder again. They're just so comfortable yeah. with the the, um, the worm drive. It's heavier, but it has more torque, and uh, they just find that it's a better heavy-duty uh, circular saw. Yeah. So it's been primarily Being West Coast. Being able to see the blade seeing that blade just seems like how do you give that yeah, up <laughs> at least if you're right-handed <laughs> it's true so so you see it primarily in california oregon washington you see some in nevada and parts of texas but it's picking up a little bit more i talked to some of the power tool company i mean the the big guys and they said they're starting to see increased sales of worm drive on the east coast now so there is a kind of a shift people trying it and again the left blade the more torque uh, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great saw. They're excellent. Yeah. And, uh, maybe the best of all, if you're left-handed, then you could use a sidewinder now, now you can actually see it. And so right. maybe that would tip <laughs> the scales, but point is there's definitely a place for both. And I'm sure the sidewinders generally are less expensive because there's a little less mechanical, uh, machinery happening with that yeah. worm drive, that gearing and however they're that lighter so the, the cost. Yeah. The cost and the, the cost, little size high speed spinning. Yeah. So, yeah. That's pretty good. Wow, that's really, yeah, that's really cool. Okay, so you guys, in fact, I'm going to grab, I've got one right here. Hold on one second. Okay. We are a video, uh, or we're, it's audio primarily, but I know some guys are looking on mm -hmm. our video. So we actually, it showed up in a video once, but here it is. Like you said, it's a shoe that the saw slides in. And so anyways, you kind of helped redesign it to this, to where it's like exactly. a, a, a more temporary or take it use it when you need it and then slip it back off exactly of a of a tool and then and then what happens from there because like a lot of people i've had ideas for tools and products and never brought them to even manufacture but that always felt like the easy part how do you then like get that thing you know distributed mm -hmm. across the mm -hmm. country so what and i'm curious from your ask with you because you don't really maybe have the training as a supply chain expert necessarily, but what, what did you guys, how did you, how did you take the next step then to get it spread across the country? Okay. Let me tell you, can I tell you a couple of things about the plate first before I get to that about oh, why? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Because yeah, let's stick on the, plate. the whole idea behind the plate, because if you're on a job site and you need to cut some, you know, you need to make some cuts, you need some rips of some identical pieces of wood. The only real options you had before was a table saw. And if you have to lug that table saw everywhere on the job site, it's kind of, it's really, it's a hassle. Uh, yeah. And wherever the table saw is, then you have to bring the wood to the table saw to cut it or keep moving the table saw to where your wood is. So that was yeah. one thing because we were thinking about, look, we're on the other side of the, the job site and some sites are quite big. You have to keep lugging this thing around plus lugging it around in your uh, in your truck. And the other thing is the, um, they're known to be rather dangerous. The, the, 
the table saws because you have this exposed blade and you're getting about 40,000 injuries a year in the United States alone just from table saws. Wow. So that's like you lose lost job time, et cetera. So we, we saw ours as an, an alternative to the table saw in the sense that ours became essentially a portable table saw because you could take it anywhere on the job site. We created the, um, the, the rip fence, we put rollers on it and the adjustable rip fence, you could, you measure the first cut. So you basically do away with table saw, you do away with uh, chalk lines, you don't need it any longer. And, uh, and, you, and the, the speed of the cuts now, it's so much faster. So you really save a lot of time. And the, the, the yeah. other thing about it was we just felt that it was a, a much safer product in the sense that we put a handle on the rip fence. So it's like finally for the first time you can actually use a, a circular saw with two hands. I mean, some do have a knob on it, but for ours, for making really measured cut, it was, uh, we tried to think of everything, how to address a number of issues with one product. And by, yeah. we produce it overseas now, and, and that reduced the cost by over 30, close to 35%. So the original one used to sell for about $125, and now it sells mm. for 80. So we knocked, uh, you know, we, yeah. we knocked $45 off the price. So Yeah, that's a lot. You know, it's funny about table saws, because I always thought of table saw as like how you get perfect cuts and like you can't beat it. And that's true. Fine. Until I bought one of those like job site portable ones, like the kind that you would set up on a job site that like one mm -hmm. guy can carry around. And if you ever tried to cut like a three quarter inch piece of plywood or like do a, a big rip on one of those small saws, it's not, it's, it's easier said than done to get a perfect cut because sometimes the plywood is so big and the saw, unless you have a saw that's like heavy and has some mass, you can't just like can't maneuver. run your, yeah, you can't just run your plywood across it. You got to get a bunch of help. And so I, when I was using this one, I was just, and I've got a table saw in my shop now too, but a lot of times it's just not, not only is it uh, easier, but it's just as accurate for the types of, you know, I'm not doing cabinets, but for the types of stuff I was doing, I was like, oh man, this is not only faster and easier, but it's just as good as the, mm -hmm. you know, the, the contractor or the lightweight style saws that push around easy. So how do you build a business around a, a new product and how do you get people to know about it? And, and it's, I'm telling you, it's not easy. It's very, very hard because um, the first place you go to, to talk about, Hey, we just, you know, we have this great product. We'd like you guys to carry it. And they, the first question they ask is, well, who's selling it now? And then you have to say, well, actually you're going to be the first one. And they're like, Hmm, I don't know if I want to take that chance or not. So, um, so that's why we focused on trade shows for the first four months. We really wanted to get out because if we could demo it in front of retailers, that was key. So going to those trade shows, the first one when we launched it, I mean, we actually won that Pro Tool Innovation Award when we launched it in September 2019. That was at an Orgill trade show in, in Chicago. And, um, and we had great sales. Uh, so a lot of retailers... When they see it, they're like, wow, this is actually pretty cool. We haven't seen anything like this before. And so we managed to get into about 50 stores just like that, uh, just from two days in the trade show. So we went to another one and another one. So it just kept building. Uh, and once um, it helps to build the story because we can now talk about where we are and who's picked us up. So the, the, the challenging part dealing with not retail, but a lot of the retailers buy through wholesalers. They buy through the true values or the do it best or the orgils. And so um, they, um, 
so they attend those shows to, to buy, essentially. So going to them directly is a little bit harder. So they all come to the show. That gives us the opportunity, and it's perfect. The, the challenge we had is six months after we launched, when we were just starting to really take off from these shows, is when COVID hit. And all of a sudden, there were no more trade shows. And we're like, okay, now what do we do? Everything's, you know, yeah. you can't even show it. We can't demo it. We can't go in front of people. Can't even go into stores because a lot of them closed. So as a new company, we're already two years into it. And we kind of hit this uh, wall. So, <laughs> yeah. but everything started to shift uh, to online. And, um, and and a lot of these, the big box stores or the, the bigger chains, they want to test your product out online first. So before they'll take it in store, they want to say, well, let's see how it performs online. So we started getting onto more and more online stores. And what I can tell you is um, in 2019, only 1% of our sales was online. And then in 2020, it went up to 28%. And then last year, we were at 54% of our sales are online. So this is wow. the shift. It's really So we became very much online and we... We got onto Lowe's.com. We got onto Home Depot.com. We got into uh, Home Depot Canada online, uh, Menards online, uh, Tractor Supply. So we're getting into more and more of those online, and we're trying to now transition into the in-store. So at this point, we're in over 300 stores uh, um, across the U.S. and in Canada in retail. Wow. So it becomes like a you've got kind of two separate sales uh that you probably, I'll say like presentations that you have down one for like explaining the tool. And then you probably have a whole nother one for these retailer people. Cause you're, I've never really thought about, actually I thought about it at this trade show because at, at world of concrete, cause a couple of people were talking about white cap and that they were there basically their whole purpose was just to pitch to, mm -hmm. you know, these retailers and such. So that was the first time I kind of thought about it. Like, Oh yeah. If they, if they sold, if they bought, then that's, you're home free, you know, at least. So anyways, uh, that's pretty interesting uh, strategy. You just kind of get the start that way. But with the online now, you're able to, I don't know. Well, the thing with online. Have, have a test drive with it. The, channel, the challenge with online is that um, generally the uh, end user should have some awareness of the product. Because if they've never heard of it, they're not going to go searching for it. So that's the challenge. Mm -hmm. we, we need awareness. That's the key for us. On the retail side, what we decided to do, um, you saw our point of sale displays that we had in the booth that we put in retail. So what we decided to do is uh, actually when we provide a retailer with the, the point of sale display, we, we give them this 10-inch video. And it's preloaded with the promo video from our website. So now a consumer in the store, they see the video, they see the skate plate in action and they go, oh, now I get it. And without that, I mean, you just have our, our packaging hanging on a shelf and it doesn't explain what it is. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's, that's one of the, the issues. And then as- Yeah, that, yeah. that's cool. And then- I, funny, uh -huh. when I was thinking about the tool and there's some tools that you see them and uh, it seems so obvious that you kind of assume that you've seen it before, that you've used it before. And I remember with the skate plate when I saw it, I thought that my dad used to have one or something. I remember thinking like, <laughs> oh yeah. But what I was what I was doing was just remembering how he would often just build little mm -hmm. jigs and you know clamp a straight edge and yep. all that, which is kind of same. And I was combining that with the fact that he would sometimes like 
you know, cover the bottom of his saw with tape or something just to protect if it's a nice right. surface, you right. know, these two separate things. And when you see a tool, that's a good idea. You're like, oh, yeah, of course, that's been on forever. Yeah, for sure. But in actuality, <laughs> it's like, no, it hasn't. It's just it should have because it's obvious now. But it's interesting because there's always some old hardcore guys that would never use this because they say, look, I, I can cut straight. I don't need, even need a chalk line. I can do it. I can use my finger, you know, but. Uh, but the younger, I mean, guys, they're like, look, why, why be foolish? This thing really does, does the job, you know, it makes life a lot yeah, easier. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a level of like skill that the pros have that the rest of us don't, and they really can. And it's for them, no doubt faster to do it that way. But when you're a weekend warrior, mm -hmm. you don't have that, you don't have that skill to get as good as you don't have the skill to get pro cuts. Yeah. And so you need like every, uh, every bit of help you can. Yeah, that's what we say, cut like a pro, you know, this one helps you to cut like yeah. a pro. But we made some upgrades because we made the one, uh, the first production and and then we learned, I mean, there was nothing bad about the the original one. It's just, we, uh, we found ways to make it even a little bit better. One was with that skate guide where we had that, you, you, you that's the one you have, it has the, the four roller head on there. And right. yeah, and then now we come out with the, the 10 roller head. Yeah. So now if you want more stability, I mean, it's, it's, it's much better. So you get a lot of stability for those rip yeah. cuts, but you can also use it like a uh, portable panel saw because now you can hang your saw and, you know, cut horizontal cuts. So. Good point. I hadn't, uh, hadn't had an opportunity to do that with it yet. Yeah. Wow. That's really <laughs> neat. So now that your brain's been like doing this for a while, you know, thinking about creative ways to use tools and stuff, are, are you, and you you don't have a background as an inventor necessarily, no. uh, at least by training. But are you coming up with more ideas? And now that your brain is thinking this way, do you find that you're got other things coming to the surface? What I can tell you is that uh, when people see it, and then I, I talk to them, so many times people come to me and they say, "I had this idea." You know, they wanted to. Mm. You know, I'd like to take this uh, and actually turn it into a product. But then I start to explain to them what you have to go through to do it. It's not so easy. It's a lot of work, uh, but we have some ideas. One, one of the kind of the easy low hanging fruit is our plate is designed for the seven and a quarter inch saw. And it fits about 95% of them, which is pretty good. Uh, almost all of them. So, and it fits a couple of the six and a half inch, but we get requests sometimes like, Hey, will you fit the 10 and a quarter inch? Can you fit this, uh, you know, 15 and or the 16 and 5 16, the, the bigger saws. So for us would be to make like another generation for larger saws and then also for smaller saws. That would probably be the, yeah. the, the, the first thing. The other thing is, um, talking to consumers, they're saying, listen, we want to cut the four by eight sheet and your rip fence is only good for 12 or 13 inch cuts. So that's why we made that. The skate guidezilla, you saw that one. I mean, that's there's yeah. nothing like that on the market. You can cut twenty up <laughs> yeah. to a twenty six, twenty seven inch cut. So, uh, yeah. so do you have anybody using it for granite slabs? I oh, know sure. The water, the HDO one is another. Do you have guys like fabricating granite with it? I've got I, here's a spoiler alert for our viewers. Um, <laughs> I've got a friend with a granite shop, and he told me a few years ago, just kind of casually, he's like, you know, he he's big. He's got this big business he's like yeah people could do their own granite mm -hmm. it's it's not that hard and like diy your own granite slabs and i was like what how is that even possible i haven't got the whole story but i'm going to be filming this guy in the next couple mm -hmm. months and i'm going to ask him about that but anyways when i saw your uh the skate plate and the the water yeah the show, show, yeah, I, was the like, show. I was kind of like 
oh yeah, if you don't have a granite saw, which nobody does, you know, hundred thousand dollars, <laughs> you could probably get a pretty good countertop quality cut uh, straight line, right? With one of these. So yeah, and that's exactly you, you got guys doing that. Yeah, that was the other thing because uh, at the job site, well, one one of the issues was control control joints after you you know had poured concrete and uh, you need to to run these control joints. And you always saw two guys doing it. One guy was cutting and the other guy was holding the hose or squirting the water bottle to reduce the dust. And it's like, this is ridiculous. That's why we, we came up with this. Uh, <laughs> that's why we came up with the attachment to the skate plate. It's the H2O water kit. And the greatest thing is it attaches to a common garden hose. So it completely reduces the dust and you don't need the second guy. And so, yeah. so that's, uh, that's where that came from. So. And that world of concrete is pretty popular. So we were pretty happy about that. We had pretty good sales yeah. there. So this is like a I need to talk to an electrician about this, but every time I've done that, spray a hose next to my skill saw, you know, if I'm cutting block or whatever. Right. Man, I can't help but just feel like I'm about to get blown up or shocked. <laughs> is that is that a thing or is that like modern outlets like accommodate that or what's is that truly just you know something you don't have to worry about? Well we have well, the thing is you have this adjuster on the, the, the water flow adjustment on, on the, the H2O. You don't really need high pressure water. You just need enough to control the dust and you just point it at the point of the cut. So it keeps the water kind of on the, the, the blade side, but then we it comes with this um, GFCI, the circuit interrupter. Yeah. So, but okay. we have not heard, I mean, these guys keep buying it and they're, they're using yeah. it and they like it. So. <laughs> Uh, I mean, yeah. otherwise they're cutting with a regular circular saw, but someone has the garden hose. So yeah, everyone's doing well, it. Having the GFI outlet right there would, I would feel better. Yeah. <laughs> and like I said, I've, I've done this and I've seen guys do it all the time. And it's never a big deal, but every time I'm doing yes. it, half my brain is thinking about the cut and the other half is thinking like, I wonder how deep that water has to get in the saw before it like connects to the handle housing. I, I know. Really, like, yeah. You see it and you <laughs> think about that. I know no one wants to get electrocuted. Unfortunately, nobody has, but, uh, yeah. you know, I get it. So, yeah. So we're, um, we're pretty proud where we're at now. I mean, we made it through the worst part of the COVID and now the sales are picking up again. We're getting more awareness and, and as guys like you yeah. that help out anytime we can talk about the product, uh, this is really helpful for us. We appreciate it very much. Yeah. So. Oh yeah. It's great. Um, one more question for you and maybe it'd be like by way of word of advice that you could give. Um, I, so I've had, like I said, a few ideas for products. The place I always stop is when I have to get out my wallet and like pay a bunch of money to an attorney or somebody to investigate or manufacture. There's so much risk. Mm -hmm. Uh, well not, not risk, but no, it is risk. You, you risk a lot of money by testing and getting it started. Um, you guys are way, you obviously got past that. You're way down that road. So do you have any advice? I, I know there's people listening who who are interested in creating new products. I, I had a friend, and I'll maybe put this in the intro, but his grandpa invented a lot of the tools that the fencing industry still uses mm -hmm. because they made his job easier. He was a fencing guy. And when you're doing that every day, you, you can come up with, man, if only this. And this was a long time ago, but his family still uses all those tools and they, they had patents on it for a long time. And I know a lot of the tradesmen who are doing these things have ideas because they would make their life easier. So any, any uh, words or comments to people thinking those things, you know, whether it's cheering them on or whether it's giving them a word of caution about 
what it actually takes to get into it? Well, I guess a couple things. One is um, it definitely takes longer than you thought. Everyone thinks it's such a great idea. And once you create this product, it's just going to take off like crazy. And unfortunately, it just doesn't happen that way for kind of the reasons I was telling you to get the exposure out there. And uh, so expect that it's going to take longer. Um, when you look into, if you're producing something, you need to create the tooling first. And then you start looking into where, where are you going to get this done? Can you do it in the U.S.? Can you do it for a reasonable price? Because it, it all starts to add up. And I know we were concerned and other anyone who invents something, you're concerned. You have this idea and it's already you have like a prototype. You, you kind of want to talk to someone about it, but you're afraid to show it because they're just going to take your idea. And um, so then you, that's where those patents come in. But the patent, it, we spent a lot of money on patents. We probably spent about $80,000 on patents. I mean, that's how crazy it gets. Um, wow. So, and, and because you have to pay the maintenance on them, you have to pay the lawyers to, to draw them up and, and everything. But um, what we looked at on our particular product, we thought about where's the market? And for circular saws, the U.S. is the market. We have over 50% of the global market is right here in the U.S. So that means you really don't have to go anywhere else. If you can capture a good percent of the U.S. market, you're in great shape. And another 10% is Canada. And it's easy to go, you know, yeah. for them to buy or whatever. So we looked at markets where um, circular saws are predominant. So over 50% here, another 10% in Canada. And, and Australia and New Zealand actually is another 10%. They build a lot out of wood, whereas Europe, it's mostly brick that they're, they're using when they're building. But we, right. put, we put patents in places where we felt uh, we could enforce them. And we felt pretty comfortable that if someone violates our patent here in, in the States, we're not too concerned because we can enforce it. And in here, you know, there's good judicial systems to handle that. Because people yeah. will say all the time, yeah, but in China, someone's just going to make this product and we don't care. Let them make it in China, but they're not going to sell it here. We're going to stop them. So so yeah. I wouldn't discourage anyone from going forward uh, with their ideas because they probably have a great idea that a lot of people thought this makes so much sense. But just to know that it's going to cost some money and uh, it's going to take longer than you, you thought. We're four years into well, this now, you know, since we yeah. from idea to where we are now, it's four years. So. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. That's a, that's so helpful. Even just saying, you know, $80,000 in legal fee right there. That's like a, a, that helps people like decide really quickly whether how bad they want to like attempt their, you know, Well, that's because we have international patents. So we have them in Canada, we have them in Australia, New Zealand and Europe. So we, we patented it in, in many places, but, uh, we had a guy on who made, who made a concrete mixer, really clever, kind of just works by gravity, like rocking it back and forth. I don't know how much he spent on his patents, but it took him like three or four tries mm -hmm. of like getting rejected. It just low in the U.S., you know, and oh, man, it's just I, I don't know. It's a testament to like not giving up and taking risk. You know, it felt I was thinking like, geez, that, that's like a like a casino, like rolling the dice. Like you you pay the money, you submit this mm -hmm. packet and they could you, it's like a coin toss yeah. whether they're going to give it. In fact, that happened to us with our copyright. And this is a much smaller amount of money, but we spent several thousand dollars on essential craftsmen um, copyrights because mm -hmm. at the time we were kind of thinking like oh maybe we'll make some tools that have our logo stamped on them and so mm -hmm. they want to know like what exact kind of tools are you going to make right. and then they decide whether they'll grant you that and we spent a bunch of money trying to get um those just copyrights and they and they came back and they're like nope yeah. and the attorney was kind of like 
okay, they said no. If you'd like to spend another, I can't remember, like $3,000, then we could try this angle. Right. And that was already our second. So I was, I was like tapping. I was like, I'm done. We'll just make videos. That's what we found so, because when we submitted ours, then next thing you know, the, the patent inspector, they, they, um, they send you back this long report and they say, well, somebody else had a patent for that part of your product. Someone else had one kind of fundamental on this one. So what makes yours different from them that you're not copying theirs? And you go, yeah. go through that. And yeah, you have to pay the lawyer to do it. You're not going to go in yourself and, and all the diagrams and everything that has to be drawn up. So yeah, that's yeah. a hassle for sure. You know, so, but we, yeah, well, yeah. So I've got a, I've got a bunch of, not a bunch, a decent amount of footage of using um, our skate plate that you sent us. So I'll, we'll lay that over this interview and, and probably, I don't know, maybe in the next year or so, we'll get, get it back and uh, get a real video kind of going up. We put it, we talked about it and viewers, I'll link to this as well um, with my dad showing, telling it. His, his um, reaction was basically what you said, which is like, this is great for uh, if you are not a pro and um, what I was thinking about on like a job site, if you have a kid who's new, who's not a pro yet, but you, if you're like the foreman, you don't want him to mess up and you can say, make me like 12 rips, mm-hmm. you just set that, set them up and man, you got like a level of quality control. So even in a pro, even like on a pro job site, there's probably a spot for it, even just to keep your employees <laughs> from getting too squirrely or at least the new guy. Well, you'll save a lot of time. That's for sure. I mean, you really will save yeah. a lot of time. It's very portable. So that's what we see. We we had one video uh, where we were ripping a four by eight sheet into 12 inch uh, sections and we timed it and it was 24 seconds to do that. I mean, that's how yeah. much time you save and they're all identical cuts. So, yeah, I that's mean, what I, that's what I used it for. I was ripping plywood um, to sandwich them and make this beam out of some like two by tens and I, and so that, that's exactly the use I did is like, I know each one of these needs to be, you know, nine and a half inches, whatever. And it's just boom, 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 just went right through it. And it was, uh, it not only was it fast, but they came out just like, you yeah, know, exactly. straight and it was, it was really nice. Well, Hey, Bob, this is great. Thanks for uh, sharing. It was a pleasure meeting you. And, um, you we will, uh, put some of that footage up and, and hopefully here before too long, we'll have another chance to really show and tell it. And, um, I, I'm I'm really proud of you guys for getting it to this point. It just seems like a, a great idea, and that's had great execution. And who knows? Maybe it'll just kind of keep rolling out till it's uh, you know hanging on the that everyone shelf has everything. one at some point. Yeah. Let me ask you something, yeah. but maybe this this is not appropriate. But if I wanted to give uh, offer a discount code or something like that, do you do that on these podcasts or it's not? Oh, actually, yeah, we sure do. Um, we will put that in the in the uh, link. What about? Well, you tell me. Maybe the code. What? What? What would the code? We be? would put Should like I... pod, podcast fifteen, and okay. that'll give them a fifteen percent discount. They go on skateplate.com and they get a fifteen percent discount. And hey, that's a that's a great idea. And the other thing is, we can for you. I mean, um, we can say like we'll give you five dollars for every sale, and we donate it to whatever charity you want it to go to. Oh, that's cool. Okay, well, let's set something like that up. Yeah, we we're a big fan of the uh, the Mike Rose uh, Foundation for you know getting the trades, getting people in the trades. But we can sort that out. Um, mm-hmm. I'll put that link podcast fifteen in the description. And I I think I told you at that show, but we're we are building out like a we're improving our membership uh, site right now. We have a membership site for people who are our donors and patrons, mm-hmm. but we're making that whole 
experience better for those folks who've really kept us in business. And if you don't mind, maybe we'll keep that um, that discount code sure. in there kind of permanently for Absolutely. those folks yeah. as well yeah. um, as a as a perk for them. Okay. Well, hey, I can't thank you enough. Thanks for taking the time. It was a pleasure. And um, we will uh, talk again one of these days. Thanks so much, Nate. Really great talking to you. I appreciate it. Take care.